Two weeks ago, we received news that one of the graduates of Toronto Baptist Seminary, who had served the Lord for more than 30 years, had a sudden heart attack. And his wife reported afterwards that the doctors conducted a series of tests and found that the, blockage, the blockages were more serious than they had considered first. And so the only remedy would be heart surgery. I think about that, I think that life is filled with lots of bad news. Some of us will file our income taxes and we will get bad news that instead of the government being generous to us, we must be generous to the government. It would appear that for every good news we receive, we receive five bad ones. But for Christians, we have the ultimate good news. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of salvation that can never be tarnished or taken away. And although we are busy with many things in life, we must never lose sight of the paramount importance of the gospel. And this is one of the important themes the gospel in the book of Philippians. I know that many consider Philippians as the epistle of joy, and it is sure that the Apostle Paul, more than any other epistle, deals with the theme of joy. But it is often easy to overlook that this is an epistle that says much about the theme of the gospel. The Apostle writes this epistle to friends, to thank them for their gift. And after the initial greetings and thanksgiving in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, he deals with the matter of his own imprisonment in verses 12 to 18. He expresses confidence that though he is in prison in Rome, that his trial will result in his deliverance, his release and his final vindication, that God will answer the prayers of the Philippians, and through the help of the Spirit of God, he will be released in verse 19. But then he contemplates the possibility that his trial in Rome might result in his death, in verse 20. And he expresses confidence that whether he lived or died, that Christ would be exalted in his body. And he expresses the guiding principle, the driving principle of his life. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He candidly reveals after that, that he's torn between two conflicting desires. That on one hand, he desires to depart, that is to die, and to be with the Lord, which is far better, in verse 23, but he concludes that he will remain for their progress and joy of faith. That, in other words, he wants to go on to heaven, but he believes that God will keep him there for the progression of their joy and faith, that is, the Philippians. Then in verses 27 to 30, the writer pivots from a description of his own circumstances, his imprisonment, to deal then with the exhortation 
which concerns the gospel. And he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your fears, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I want us to deal then with this matter of the gospel as it is revealed in this chapter. Whatever we might say regarding the gospel, first we must recognize that the gospel contains a specific content that is Jesus Christ. The term gospel, evangelion, is a major theme in Paul's writings. Of the 72 instances or instances of the noun evangelion in the New Testament, 64 of these occur in the Pauline epistles. In our passage, or rather in this book of Philippians, in these four chapters, Paul will make nine references to the gospel, to Evangelion. We find it in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, and verse 7, verse 12, verse 17, and verse 27. The term occurs in chapter 2 and verse 2, in chapter 4, verse 3, and then finally in verse 15 of chapter 4. What it, state, what it shows then in these nine instances that the gospel is this, that the epistle is dominated by the theme of the gospel. In fact, in the very first chapter of Philippians, the term evangelion or gospel occurs six times. Just by the weight of the evidence, it is clear that this is a major concern of the Apostle Paul. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize is that the term evangelion or gospel means simply good news. It was a term that was used in ancient Greece. The gospel or evangelion in a Greco-Roman world could refer to the birthday of the God. And Augustus in the emperor cult was seen as a God. And so his birthday would be seen as gospel, good news. The coronation of a new emperor was seen also as good news. Even the speech of the emperor was also called gospel, good news. When Paul uses Evangelion or gospel, it is unlikely that he uses it or draws upon Greco-Roman usages. Rather, it is more apparent that the gospel as Paul perceives it falls in line with the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew into Greek, where the verb for gospel is used to herald the Lord's universal victory and his kingly reign in passages like Psalm 68, verse 12, or 69, verse 2, or Isaiah 41, verse 27, or 52, verse 7. What I'm saying is that Paul, when he uses gospel, that we must not see then the basis of the usage merely in Greco-Roman culture, but rather in the Old Testament scriptures. One of the things I think that is unique in Philippians is that the Apostle Paul nowhere specifically explains the gospel. He does not define evangelion. 
And perhaps the reason he does not define it, it is because he uses it as a technical term that was understood by his hearers. But one of the things that I think that becomes clearer is that for the Apostle Paul, whatever we may say of gospel, that the gospel is bound up with the person and work of Christ. If you go down to verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That genitive of Christ explains that the gospel is related to Jesus Christ. What is distinctive about the Christian gospel, it is the good news of Christ. We may flesh this out further to suggest that the content of the gospel, the good news of salvation, is that which God has provided through the crucified and risen Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you stand, and by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Here we have a clear description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. The gospel begins with an unflattering portrait of man as sinner and separate from God, that our sins have driven a wedge between us and God. That sin is not merely a series of wrong choices or moral missteps, but it is a bent or a disposition of the heart, an innate godlessness and self-centeredness which exalts itself above God. That sin at its base of operation lies in the flesh and brings all under the condemnation of the law. And as such that we are not only sinners, but that we are helpless, incapable of delivering ourselves, but God in his great love, with which he has loved us, has sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come into the world to die for our sins. And that in dying for our sins, he won for us redemption. That is deliverance. This is a term of the marketplace. That he won for us reconciliation. A term that refers to family relation. That he won for us justification, a term related to the law court where we are acquitted before God. That this salvation our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished by his death. And this salvation which has three tenses in the past, we were saved in Romans 8 verse 24. And present we are being saved in 1 Corinthians 15 2. And future we will be saved in Romans 5 verse 9. This gospel which relates to Christ and what he did for our sins, demand repentance. That is, this unconditional and unreserved no to a life of rebellion and an unconditional and unreserved yes 
to newness of life. That this gospel demands of all repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my first argument simply is that the gospel, as Paul perceives it, relates to the person of Christ and to the work of Christ. But as you look at the book of Philippians, and particularly this first chapter with its six references to the gospel, not only must we find that the gospel in its content is related to Christ, but that the gospel involves believers' active participation in order for it to advance. This is something that the Apostle Paul makes clear, perhaps clearer here in this first chapter of Philippians than he's done anywhere else. The gospel has as its content Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. But the gospel, according to Paul, involves believers' active partnership in order to advance the gospel in the world. One of the things that we ought to note is that Paul is passionate about the gospel. That he will do everything for it to thrive and to advance. The Apostle Paul would make us understand that his concern is for the advancement of the gospel. If you look at chapter 1 verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that these things which happened to me, he's talking about his incarceration, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. His concern is the gospel should advance. And Paul tells the Philippians, friends from whom he had been plucked, having been imprisoned, he says, though I have been imprisoned, my imprisonment is for the advance of the gospel. Now we may ask the question, how can a man who had gone around the Mediterranean world for years preaching the gospel, now finds himself languishing in jail in Rome, and then he's going to write to his friends in Philippi and say to them, you know what, I'm in jail, but you know what, this is necessary for the gospel to advance. Anybody who looks at that at face value would say, but Paul, you are in prison. The gospel is in prison. How is it that you're saying the gospel is advancing? That this is turned out for the furtherance, for the advance of the gospel. Now, Paul tells us that there are two ways in which his imprisonment has assisted in the promotion of the gospel. Verse 13, so it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Here Paul is in prison. He's probably under house arrest. That, is mean, that means he's chained night and day to two soldiers. Everywhere he goes, they go with him. And everybody who comes to visit Paul, they are right there. In other words, Paul cannot have a private conversation. And so when he takes up his pen and he begins to write Philippians, and he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. These guards are hearing the content of this very epistle. When he tells them, being confident of this very good thing, this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it to the end. They are hearing. 
all of his writings and all of his witnessing to the gospel, these gods in Rome are hearing. And so much so that Paul can tell us later on that he can send greetings to those who belong to the household, that is to the family of Caesar himself. What I'm saying is, Paul's imprisonment in Rome meant that he was able to evangelize Caesar and his family. And whilst God did not save Caesar himself, God did the next best thing by saving his family members. How did the gospel advance? You see, the gospel can never be changed. Because when Paul was imprisoned, it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, that is, all those who belong to Caesar, that my chains are in Christ. I'm here because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Christ was proclaimed in the very center and heart of Rome, in the place of greatest power, political power. So the gospel was advancing because even in prison, Paul was proclaiming Christ. But the gospel that Paul was concerned should advance was not only advancing in Rome and in the palace of the emperor, but the gospel was advancing even among the Philippians. In verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. God is incredibly wise. Paul was an apostle. He was blessed with the Holy Spirit. And his ministry was enormously successful. You could understand that Paul was in Philippi proclaiming and people were just spectators. We've got to listen to this awesome apostle. And many were never involved in proclaiming the gospel. So the Lord removed Paul from Philippi, put him away in Rome in prison. And what happened? The church suddenly sprang to life. Well, who's going to preach the gospel? We can't have Jesus Christ not proclaimed. And then they look around at one another and said, well, are you going to preach the gospel? And maybe the one look at me and said, well, are you going to preach the gospel? And after a while, what happens? They themselves began to pick up the slack. They realized that there is a gap, that the gospel was not being proclaimed, and they began to proclaim the gospel. But it took Paul's removal to fire them up to do what was their task in the first place. Some Paul says, now the gospel has been proclaimed. By my removal, the gospel has been proclaimed. Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chain, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In verse 15 he says, some preach Christ, even from envy and strife. That is, they have falls and ungodly motives in preaching Christ. Some are doing it from goodwill. They're concerned about the glory of the Lord. They want to see men and women saved. The former, those who preach Christ from envy and strife, preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. They want to say to Paul, you know what, we can do this better than you. You know, we don't really need you, Paul. They want to rub the salt in, into the wound of Paul as he's in prison. But there are some who preach the gospel out of pure motive, out of love. In verse 17, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. They preach the gospel because of love, love for the Lord. They know that Paul is in Rome and God has placed him there to provide 
and apologetic for the gospel. So Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether men are preaching the gospel from false motives or pure motives, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. You see, the heart of the gospel is proclaiming Christ. Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He says, it doesn't ultimately matter why people are preaching Christ, but so long as they are preaching Christ, I will rejoice. And I will go on rejoicing. Why? Because Christ is proclaimed. I won't worry about motives. I'll leave that to God. But Christ has been preached. You see, Paul is greatly concerned for the advancement of the gospel. But one of the things that become evident to us as you read this passage is that for the gospel to advance, it requires partnership. So if we go back to the first instance of the term evangelion or gospel in chapter 1, we see that in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippines, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time I remember you, I thank God for you. And always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. I'm asking God for good things on your behalf with joy. Why? Why am I praying for you with joy? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The gospel is concerned with Christ. And his salvific work, his saving work. But the gospel requires partnership. The partnership of believers. And in verse 5 he says that. He uses the term koinonia. And koinonia which is translated here in the New King James as partnership. Always in every prayer of man making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship or your partnership in the gospel. This partnership means to have something in common. To share something with another. And the apostle Paul says that he and the Philippians were in partnership. They were having something in common that is the gospel. That is the Philippines were cooperating with Paul in the gospel. And their fellowship, their cooperation in the gospel must be seen as comprehensive, must be viewed in the widest possible sense. When Paul therefore prays God and thanks God for these Philippians, who he says, from the first day until now, were fellowshipping with Paul in the gospel, we need to look at what that means. How did the Philippians fellowship with Paul in the gospel? I want to suggest first that their fellowship in the gospel was pecuniary and financial. What I mean by that is that they fellowship, they joined Paul in the gospel by supporting his ministry financially. They sent gifts to Paul even when he was in Rome. And if you skip over to chapter 4 of this epistle, and in verses 14 to 15, he tells them there in chapter 4, he says, Now you Philippians know also 
that in the beginning of the gospel, that is when I first brought the gospel to you, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For in even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. In verse 18, he could say, Indeed, I have all and abound, and I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. The things sent from you are referring to the material and financial gift that they have sent to the Apostle Paul. And he describes these in verse 18 as a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. This was a church that partnership with Paul in the gospel. And it meant that they gave of their meager resources. They gave themselves first to God and then to the ministry. These out of their poverty were generous. They, they, they were not rich and wealthy Christians. But it's out of their deep poverty, having delivered themselves to God, having recognized that all that they have belonged to God, that they gave to the ministry to support the proclamation of the gospel. Partnership in the gospel, then, as understood by Paul, in call, involves practical and financial support of the gospel. But partnership in the gospel involves prayer for Paul and the spread of the word of God. In chapter 1, verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, his incarceration, his imprisonment, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One of the ways the church in Philippi partnered with Paul in the gospel is in prayer. They were praying for him, that God would keep him brave and courageous, that he might witness to the saving merit and the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul recognized the need for prayer for ministry. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. But partnership in the gospel not only involves financial support of the gospel and prayer for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ, but it involves personal proclamation of the word. Again, if you go back to the passage of which I've just looked at, Paul says, after he departed from Philippi, many became bold in their weakness. One of the ways we partnership in the gospel is not just by giving money and by praying, Lord, please use those who are preaching the gospel, but we ourselves witness and speak to the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what occurred in Philippi. They took up the mantle. They proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul saw them as partners in the gospel. They were willing to give and to pray and to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul recognized that in their preaching of the gospel, even though their motives may at times be questionable, he subordinated his personal interest to the wider interest of the gospel in order to see it advance. The gospel concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, but the gospel involves partnership and partnership of God's people. 
But there is something else as we look at the use of Evangelion in the text that we must consider. And it is this. The third, the gospel places an inescapable obligation on believers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of it. And this is what we see in verse 27. Having talked about his incarceration, having talked about the prospect of his deliverance, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This one thing he says you must do. Only this one thing. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I, and I, I may hear of your fears that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, conduct yourselves worthily of the gospel. And the word here, conduct, or translated conduct yourself, derives from the noun polis, city. And it really means your citizens. The main verb conduct yourself means act as citizens. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Well, citizens, why? Because they were Roman citizens. In, Ro in fact, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was settled by Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers. And they were, one of the things they were very proud of was that they were citizens of Rome. So Paul taps into this language of citizenship and says, you are citizens, but not of Rome. You are citizens of heaven. Therefore, conduct yourselves, that is, walk, live worthily of the gospel. Apostle Paul is fond of calling believers to walk worthy, to live in a manner that is consonant. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In Philippians 4 verse 1. He prays that the Colossians may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. They were to walk worthy of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2 12. But now he says that they must walk worthy or live in a manner that is morally consistent with the gospel. That's what he's saying. The gospel requires partnership. But the gospel places an inescapable obligation on believers to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy, that is appropriate to the gospel. Now, what does that mean to walk worthy of the gospel? Well, if you read in verse 27 and following, Paul will flesh it out. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your fears. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Incidentally, he refers to the gospel twice in this verse. What it means then is that one walks worthily of the gospel if they are striving in unity and courage for the gospel. One of the ways we walk worthily of the gospel is that we are striving, and this term to strive is a military image, the image of gladiators in an arena, in a fight. They are striving together. They are striving in unity for the gospel. They are striving 
courageously. They are to stand firm. You see, how they strive is important. They are to stand firm. Again, he says, whether I come or hear of your fear, that you may stand fast. That is, you may stand firm in one spirit. So they are to strive, but they are to strive for the gospel by standing firm. They are not to be swaying back and forth. They are to be courageous and resolute like soldiers given a task and standing their ground. They must not be given to compromise, to back down over their conviction. They are to stand firm. They are to stand united as one person. In fact, the apostle puts it vividly. He says, stand in one spirit and one soul, striving for the faith of the gospel. So they are to, if they are to walk worthy of the, law, of the gospel, they are, to, they are to strive in unity and in courage for the gospel. But to walk worthy of the gospel means also to suffer for the gospel. And so in verse 28, Paul goes on and says, and, in, and not in any way terrified, and that's the language of being spooked like a horse, never being spooked by your adversaries, which to them, which is to them a proof of perdition, condemnation, but to you of salvation and that from God. He goes on in verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And so Paul says, you are to stand firm for the gospel as you strive for it. You are to stand united. But if you are walking worthy of the gospel, you ought to be willing to suffer for it. And the first thing you must not do negatively, you must not be spooked. You must not be terrified. You must not run away like a horse that is scared. You must stand your ground. And secondly, you must know it has been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ. It has been granted unto you to believe in Christ. It has been granted, the term granted comes from grace. You have been graced to believe. You have been given grace to believe, but you have been given grace to suffer. If you are a Christian, you are called to suffering. And in standing for the gospel, in living worthy of the gospel, you must be prepared to live and to die for the gospel. And the only way you can do that is to know that the same God who has graced you to believe, graced you to be saved, has also graced you to suffer. There are times when we hear stories of Christians who have gone through the fires. And you would expect that they would become disheartened and give up. And yet they continue to praise God. Why? Because deep down, there is a fountain of grace that has been given to them that even in the crucible, they can still praise God. You see, God graces us to believe, but graces us to suffer. And so we can say yes, even in the midst of our tears, we may yet rejoice. You see, if you stand for Christ, there will be opposition. Proclaiming the gospel and the supremacy of Christ in that context. Can you imagine that? You, the Roman context was one in which people said that Caesar is Lord. And the Christians come along and say, Jesus is Lord. And they didn't just say, Jesus is a Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. Now, if, he comes, if, if they go along and say, Jesus is Lord... And by that they mean that he's supreme. Then certainly Caesar can no longer be supreme. 
And of course, that's going to cause a minority in that kind of a world to run into opposition from the larger Roman population. In fact, they believed that Christians were atheists because they were, they, they, these were people who had many gods. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And Christians came along and said, there is one God and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And they said, you are narrow and you're exclusivists. And so they were persecuted. But Paul reminds them that you must walk worthy of the gospel. And to do so, you must be prepared to take opposition and suffering for the gospel. And Paul says that those who oppose you is a sign of their damnation, perdition. And it's a sign of your salvation. And Paul reminds them that they shared also in the same suffering that he himself has also experienced. And so I've argued that to walk worthy of the gospel means that we strive for it together in unity and that we are willing to bear suffering for it. But I would suggest to you, if you look at chapter 2, you will see that to walk worthy of the gospel means we must practice unity in humility in chapter 2, 1 to 4. To walk worthy of the gospel means that we must also imitate Christ in humility in chapter 2, 5 to 11. And fifthly, to walk worthy of the gospel entails that we live holy lives, shining as stars in the world. I do not have the time to develop that. Let me just quote chapter 2, 14 to 16. And so Paul says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Those who walk worthy of Christ, not only imitate Christ, or walk worthy of the gospel, not only imitate Christ in humility, but they also walk worthy of the gospel by living holy lives, shining as stars in a dark and wicked world. My friends, let us ensure that we place the gospel at the center of our lives and ministries. Paul was committed first and foremost to Christ, and the good news of Christ. He says, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. The gospel must be central in our lives. And if the gospel is to be central in our lives, we must know what it is. You know, if you've been listening over the last few months, that I have been greatly concerned about a paucity in understanding of what the gospel really is. But we ought to know that the gospel, whatever else we may consider to be, is essentially about Christ. That Jesus died on the cross. That he paid once and for all for our sins. That he was buried. And that on the third day he arose. This gospel is revelatory. It is about what God has done in Christ it is not about what we have done, but what God has done. It is dynamic because this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This gospel is normative because it brooks no rivals. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There are not two ways to salvation. All roads do not lead to heaven. There is only one name that has been given. And so we need to understand that this gospel, it is normative that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. 
No man knows the Father except the Son. And no man knows the Son except the Father and those to whom he has revealed him. We need to know that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is one way of salvation. And we need to know that, my friends. It means, therefore, that when we talk about pluralism, and when it concerns many religions, for the Christian, there is only one true religion. And I understand that to say that in this kind of world makes us seem narrow-minded and bigoted. But you know what? It is not us who are narrow-minded and bigoted. It is the scriptures. Because we stand only on God's word. But I would rather take the bigotry of scripture over the, the, the freedom and the generosity of men. Because there's only one truth. And it's God's truth. We must not only know the gospel, that it is normative, but that it is universal. That wherever men may be found, there is only one good news. And that must be upheld. We must have the gospel at the center of our lives and we must know it. But we must also not only know the gospel, we must cleave to the gospel. It must be essential in our lives. The gospel must not be seen as that which gets us into salvation and then we dispense with it. No, the gospel is to be a close and perpetual companion. Because this same good news of Jesus, it is that which saves us, but it is that which continues to sanctify us. I've mentioned to you already because I think this is important and I will repeat it in Colossians 1 verse 6. Paul tells them, the gospel has come to you as it has also come in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. As it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit. It came to you but it continues to bear fruit among you. Because you see, as they hear the gospel, they are being drawn to love Christ. You, you need to know that if the church of Jesus Christ is to mature and grow, it needs a regular focus on the gospel. Because it is only as we lift Christ up for the people of God that they are drawn to him. It is only as we placard Christ and his cross that are lost. And sinful desires are crucified. Only the cross can drive that death nail in our sins. We need the gospel if we are Christians. For our sanctification. And so the gospel must be central in our lives. But it is also important that the gospel. That we must recognize that we are to be partners in the gospel with Christ. We are involved in a number of partnerships. We are in partnership with our co-workers. We're in partnerships in marriage. And we're in partnership with some of us in business. We're in partnership with social groups. You know, we, we go to a gym and we have a group of guys with whom we work out and we have partnership on Facebook and other media. But what are the partnerships that we have? We must be partnership or partners with God in the gospel. Recognize 
that God does not need our help. When God made the world, we weren't around. He never needed us to give him advice about, you know, his, his plan of creation. And when he made the world, he did not need angelic help. In fact, he needed no help. And by the way, I want you to know that God is able to save every sinner by himself. And one of the ways he shows you that is by saving the Apostle Paul. Who evangelized Paul? Jesus. Who saved him? Nobody preached the gospel to Paul when Paul was converted. Jesus came knocking. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It reminds us that if, if the Lord wants to save anyone, he can do it without our help. So the very fact that he calls us into partnership with him is an act of condescension, is a sign of God's grace to us. You know what it is, you know, you're working in the garden and your little toddler comes along and see you planting a flower and says, Dad, can I help? Can I help? And you dig the hole and you give him the plant and he puts it in the hole. He thinks he has done something great and you clap him and applaud him. But really, you could put it in the hole by yourself. All by yourself. You see, God is able to work without us. But he's generous enough to involve us. To give us all the help we need. The grace that we need to evangelize. To work. You know, God provides the strength. God provides the gift in to evangelize. And Although he provides all that we need to evangelize, he turns around and blesses us for it. For, in other words, he blesses us for what he has worked in and through us. But we need to be partners in the gospel. We need to know that we are not saved apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that will require that we give generously of our finances it is important that we are charitable people, that we give to support all kinds of missions. But our first giving, the first use of our finances, apart from that of taking care of our own personal needs, is that we must ensure that we are provided for the preaching of the gospel. We must put the ministry of the church in our wills. We must give generously from our finances that the gospel is preached. Because God has given us no other way by which men are to be saved but by proclaiming Christ. Yes. And it is this good news that has brought us into salvation. We must therefore make every effort as God so enables us to be generous and financially so for the continuance of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. We are to pray for the gospel that God will save men and women. That God will disturb hearts. We must Take the opportunities that are given to us to preach the gospel. You know what? I, I rather a Christian who declares Christ with fear and trembling and who mumbles over it and, and does a poor job of it than rather wait for a perfect opportunity and do nothing. How was Spurgeon saved? He wasn't able to go to church. His regular church was a, a snow day. And he was hampered because of the snow, so he diverted to a little little chapel, little church. And there was a preacher there who was no preacher at all. He wasn't of his gift. And he got up and he said, look to Christ. And he says, well, it is a simple thing. 
you know what looking is? Look. And he says, to whom should you look? Well, you should look to Christ. And he looked at Spurgeon and says, young man, you are miserable. You need to look. It's a simple thing. Look to Christ. And Spurgeon looked. And he was saved. You need to know, my dear friends, we are not got to be perfect speakers. God used simple creatures, halting, failing creatures. The power does not reside in us, it resides in God. And when he gives you opportunities, you are to point men to Jesus and leave the result to him. Tell them that there is in this world a savior. We need to be judicious in our ministry, wise in our proclamation. I know my time is gone, but let me just say this. You know, there's this pastor in a, in a community who'd been trying to reach his family for many years, and, and, and they, could, they would not come to church. Whatever he did, however many invitations he gave to them, they would just ignore him and ignore the ministry of the church. And one day, one of them was bitten by a, rat, a rattlesnake. And the young man thought he was going to die, and so he called for the pastor to pray for him. And the pastor came over and he said, let us pray. And he began to pray and he said, Lord, please heal this young man who has been bitten by this rattlesnake and change his life. And then he said, Lord, please send a rattlesnake to bite his brother who's standing here at the bedside. <laughs> and then he says, Lord, would you please send a bigger snake to bite his dad who's standing here by his bedside because it seems that only when they are bitten by snakes that they turn to you. It may not have been the most appropriate prayer. It was certainly not the kind of thing that we should be doing. We need to be wise and judicious. We need to have a sense of occasion. But we must proclaim Christ. We must declare him. Whether we are timid or courageous, we must tell men that there is only one hope. And there's only one name in this life. There's only one Savior who's Jesus Christ. And my friends, whatever you do, as you support the gospel, as you are entering into partnership with the gospel, make sure that by the grace of God you walk worthily of the gospel. That your life adorns the gospel. That you live in unity. One of the worst things is to have a church fighting and divided and eating one another up and then go out in the world and say to the world you know what Christ is our savior we're giving the gospel a black eye when we do that so we must make sure that if we proclaim the gospel that we live together in unity and that we strive together in unity for the gospel that not only do we do so but we do so realizing that it will cost that we live holy and godly lives and so that by our witness, by our testimony, and by our lives, we adorn this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he place then a burden on our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen.